One of the hazards or benefits, depending on how you look at it, of my profession is that people send me every article ever written about clergy. I get the ones about clergy who are changing their neighborhood through justice programs, the ones about clergy who are renting young men to carry luggage. And recently, I got this time from both my parents the New York Times article about clergy health, the result of a large-scale study from the Clergy Health Initiative, a program at Duke University. The news, I am sorry to say, is not good. Clergy are more likely to be obese, suffer from diabetes and arthritis, and have high blood pressure. Life expectancy for clergy has dropped in the last decade. One minister in the article hadn't taken a vacation in 18 years. Some denominations are now requiring vacations and sabbaticals as a way of keeping their clergy healthy, happy, and frankly, alive. This is all a way of saying, aren't you glad I just went on vacation? <laughs> I am. Actually, I spent the month of July on a combination of vacation and study leave. Some of the time I was visiting family, and much of the time I was just around the house, plowing through the ever-mounting stack of books I really ought to read, sorting through a year's worth of scribbled notes to myself about future platforms, and sometimes just sitting around thinking about things. And that's what you want me to do, really, to gather new ideas and plan out the year a bit, return to you with a little more energy and a little less stress. You want, I think, a clergy person who is mindful, present to the moment, and sometimes it's time away that gets me there. This year, I tried a new tactic to get a little more mindful. Building on a camping trip where I knew I wouldn't have internet access, I committed to 10 days without any screen time. No email, no Facebook, no daily online crossword puzzle. And I have to tell you, I was a little worried about it. I am someone who comes home around 6 o'clock at the end of the day, having checked email just before leaving work at 5.30, and almost immediately gets online to see, I guess, if something hap earth-shattering happened in the last 30 minutes. I think what pushed me over the edge was a little article I read somewhere online, of course, about parents who spend too much time on electronic devices. The article described a toddler who was trying to get his mother's attention while she tapped away at her cell phone. He tugged her sleeve, he called her name, he said, excuse me. Finally, in frustration, he cried out, ah, and bit her on the leg. <laughs> so in an attempt to save my leg, I went without the computer for 10 days. It was actually much easier than I'd expected, and I do realize 10 days is not that long. I felt a little more disconnected from the people I wasn't actually with. I'm not much of a phone talker, and I wasn't in the area at the time, so email would have been my usual way to keep in touch with folks here. But whatever disconnection I felt because of the lack of screen time, it was nothing compared to my realization that all that email checking and Facebook posting was really a tool I had been using to disconnect from the reality around me.
The truth, of course, is that nothing very, in, very important happens between 5.30 and 6 o'clock on an average workday. But making absolutely sure about that can suddenly seem very pressing when you have a toddler whining in the kitchen and dinner that probably should be prepared and a husband who's very understanding and, of course, would not want to keep you from that email that you tell him you simply have to write in the next few minutes. Computer time had become my way of legitimizing escape. Escape from reality when reality got a little messier than I preferred. So that's the confessional part of this platform, and perhaps a tiny prompting to all of you to think about what it is in your life that keeps you conveniently disconnected, unavoidably unavailable to your real life. But what happened next is the really interesting part. There I was, spending time with my parents and my husband and daughter, and unable to trip blithely off to the computer for a little escapist email. But of course, the human mind is nefarious, and so after a day or two, I found another way to disconnect from reality, and I even felt good about doing it. Ah, fiction. Or literature, if you're trying to sound fancy. My family is the kind that excuses you from having to perform basic chores if you are reading a really, really good book. So my escape was the perfect one. During my working life, I rarely read fiction, except for the Dr. Seuss variety. The 10 minutes I have before I fall asleep lends itself more to magazine articles or short stories than really diving into a novel. And so the chance to do just that, to plunge into someone else's story, was the perfect, legitimate escape during my vacation. And that's when I got to really thinking about fiction and story, about escape and reality. Why is it that we are a story-hungry people? Whoever thought of the idea of reading about made-up characters in made-up lives, why not stay grounded in what's real? I just have to note that as I talk about staying grounded in what's real, Eleanor is tripping off to Sunday school wearing a beautiful fairy angel princess dress. <laughs> and I thank her for giving us a reminder about imagination with wings. Now, I can't talk about reality without returning for at least a moment to my first encounter with the idea that we might be all wrong about reality after all. My freshman year philosophy class introduced me to the concept that reality is a construct, a projection of our own minds, perhaps. Plato, of course, was the first reality crusher for us, providing one of the best-known images from Greek philosophy, that cave where we regular people hang out, living a shadow life to the true reality that lies above. In that realer place out in the sun, the great minds find the great things like truth and good and right, and those of us still in the cave grope around in the shadows, waiting for more to be revealed. And so it goes through a long line of philosophers, all wondering not so much why we are here, but whether we are here at all. 
Rene Descartes, of course, another highlight, answering the question with his famous, I think, therefore I am, not a bad argument, although a little self-referential. But there's a reason that I like ethics more than philosophy. I'm too practical, I think. After all, if I think this is reality and you think this is reality, why don't we just pretend it is and go from there? <laughs> I am, though, a reader, and the chance to try on different realities, as possible or impossible as they may seem, is intoxicating. I wonder if you have had the same experience I have of getting so lost in a book that when you finally pull yourself away to attend to the rest of your life, it feels as though the reality of that fictional world is the stronger one, while the experience of regular life is a pale comparison. And so what I began to think about as I tore from one world to another, one novel to another, was the way that trying on these alternate realities is really a spiritual practice, an ethical practice. Indeed, the rest of my platform might be called How to Be a Better Person Through Romance Novels. I didn't actually start with romance novels. I started with mysteries. But I decided that they counted as work because they were in the series The Sunday Philosophy Club. And indeed, those mysteries are about moral dilemmas, with a delightful Scottish heroine uncovering secrets and then confronting people who have made bad choices and offering them more moral alternatives. The heroine is even the editor of the Journal of Applied Ethics, which practically qualifies the mystery series as worthy of that college philosophy class. Not all fiction is so obviously ethically minded. But I'd argue that the whole experience of reading fiction, of imagining ourselves in a different reality, is a way of honing our skills of ethical decision-making, a way of connecting with those who are different than we. Stuck in our own lives, it's easy to imagine that our first impulse is always the right one, and even more to universalize that impulse to feel that what seems ethical to us in our moment, in our culture, must be ethical to all. The truth is, though, that while there are some universal ethical rules that cross cultural experiences, most of the finer points of ethics, and certainly many of the minute ethical decisions that make up our daily lives, have as much to do with our own lived experience and societal expectations as they do with universal truths. And if, as I tend to think, part of our job here is to erase the boundaries between people and begin to see the ways in which we are connected, then we need to learn about lived experiences that are very different from our own. It's a way, if you will, of building our skill of empathy. This is true for me even in nonfiction, in the news. It's always the stories about people that draw me in, helping me to understand why I should care about the headlines. It's certainly been the case for me in the last couple of weeks as I've watched the unfolding of very real human drama in Arizona as the immigration law SB 1070 went into effect, even as a judge ruled that some elements of that law were unallowable. 
Dozens of my Unitarian Universalist colleagues were arrested on that first day of SB 1070, and it's their stories and the stories of the men, women, and children who face harassment or deportation because of the law that pull me into what could be just something happening far away. It's even older stories that help me to imagine the landscape out there. Barbara Kingsolver's The Bean Trees and Willa Cather's Death Comes for the Archbishop, and then newer immigration memoirs that speak to an outsider's experience in our country. But the stories also help me understand the other side of the issue, help me to understand the fear that Arizona residents might be feeling as they see their state change, the desire to protect their state that the law enforcement community experiences. I still know how I feel about SB 1070. Frankly, I think it's a racist law with the potential to be terribly abused. But reading the stories, reading about other people's lived experience, helps me to see the shades of gray that must accompany even the most strongly felt ethical standpoint. So that sense of trying on another viewpoint, imagining ourselves in another's proverbial shoes, that's one reason that reading stories helps us to live ethically. And some fiction, especially science fiction and fantasy, I find, makes a point of taking on moral issues, presenting dystopian visions that have at their heart really a very present and real moral dilemma. As I've said, the chance to exercise our ethical decision-making imaginations can be found in nonfiction and fiction alike. What's important is the openness to a different experience than our own. There's something especially about fiction, though, and about poetry, too, that I think helps us to practice religion in another way, or at least helps us practice thinking religiously. Just as ethical decisions come with shades of gray, religious experience invites us into a kind of truth-beyond-reality framework. Now, before you start getting too nervous about truth-beyond-reality and wondering just how much fiction I have been reading, let me clarify. I don't mean thinking magically or even miraculously. I mean thinking mythologically perhaps, or metaphorically. The string of M's there was entirely accidental, and I couldn't change it. So we're just getting a little alliteration in our platform today. We talked a little bit about this idea of thinking metaphorically last week, actually, as we explored the intersection of science and religion. Many of my most meaningful experiences and I would call them spiritual or religious experiences, although others might simply call them important or moving. Many of my experiences like this can really best be described in metaphorical terms. I feel connected to other beings in a radical way. I have a sense somehow of being held by the universe, being known as precious and myself and loved just for that. These fleeting moments, they aren't well served by exact and literal retelling. They beg, I think, for some poetry. 
I actually started thinking about this idea that poetry is an integral part of the religious experience earlier in the summer when I was at the Unitarian Universalist Association's General Assembly. I heard a wonderful lecture by the UU minister and poet Lynn Unger. She was responding to another lecture by UU minister Gary Kowalski, who had told us that, quote, religion is the poetry of life. Angar responded saying, I wouldn't disagree, but I'd say it a different way. Religion and poetry are the same thing. Or more precisely, religion and poetry do the same thing. Like a blender and a food processor, they may not look alike, but the function is the same. Blenders and food processors pulverize. Religion and poetry connect little things to big things. You can tell the speaker's a poet, I think, the way she uses images. And that's just it, the images that we find in both poetry and religion, the way both of them are able to talk about something that isn't exactly real, but that is true in an even better way. As Angar says, poetry, quote, takes the most mundane, particular things around us and attaches them somehow to the things that our hearts know but our minds are not able to articulate. Angar goes on to explain that religion is about metaphor, not simile. Remember, simile is the likening of something to something else. Angar's example is the famous, my love is like a red, red rose. While metaphor says that two things that are, by all accounts, really different things, are somehow also the same thing. There's a sense of oneness, I think, that Angar is getting at, which certainly resonates with my own most deeply felt experiences. Metaphor, poetry, religion, she says, insist that we are not merely similar to the things around us. We are, in some possible way, one and the same thing, end quote. The language of metaphor is a rich treasure indeed, and for some of us, it's also a way to understand more traditional religious frameworks. During my internship at a Unitarian Universalist congregation, I taught a course three times over the two years I was there. The class was called Encountering Biblical Themes, and it offered the chance for participants to get to know Bible stories, but on their own terms giving space for their dislike, their fear, their disbelief, whatever the stories brought up for them. And I always emphasized that what we were reading were indeed stories, or sometimes actually poetry or song, and that they were written by people who were immersed in the language of metaphor. I was amazed each time I taught that class that it had never occurred to many of my students to think about the Bible in that way. Most of them hadn't read anything from the Bible since their childhood, when it might indeed have been presented as true in a literal way. To imagine it instead as true, the way a beautiful poem is true, or the way a moving piece of fiction is true, well, that was the real revelation for us. We have a funny relationship to reality in this culture, I think. 
The TV schedule is full of reality shows, which are, of course, heavily scripted. I'm sorry if that bursts anyone's bubble. <laughs> Out of those shows come reality stars, which when you think about it is kind of a funny name itself. Whose reality, I wonder, are they stars of? If it's the real reality, the one that you and I live in, aren't we kind of the stars of our own show? In fact, it's almost always true that I find the non-reality TV shows, the ones that are full of actual actors and well-crafted, made-up plot lines, to be the truest kind, the kind that are funny and sad and might even tell me something about life. But someone in the viewing public must be interested in that fake reality reality. And we participate, I participate in its creation through our watching, through the way we follow the pretend slash real relationships and the pretend slash real fights. I wonder about those stars sometimes. Do they forget which is the real reality? Does it all blur together under the hot lights and flashbulbs? For my money, or I guess for my time, if we are still talking about vacation, I'd rather experience the true non-reality of good fiction. Books and shows and poems that don't present themselves as factual but do give us a glimpse into the very real human condition. It welcomes us into the reality of the human mind. A reference for me to that wonderful quote, I am human, therefore nothing human is strange to me. Those lines were written in gold leaf in the hall of the congregation where I grew up, a reminder that we were all connected to each other in our humanity. And guess what I discovered? The writer of those ancient words, Terentius, was a playwright. Mostly he wrote comedies. None of them were true, I suppose. But I imagine he made them very real. Well, that is what I have been doing for the last few weeks. Disconnecting from virtual reality trying to be fully present in my own reality, and then drifting off into the true non-reality or the not-quite-true-but-real place of metaphor and story. It's been a nice little journey. And like most journeys that take you far afield of the truth you know and live, it is also good to be home. <laughs>